All right, deep breath, secure. What we started last week was we began looking at objections to eternal security. We've been talking about eternal security. And when we talk about eternal security, we're talking about God's view of whether or not somebody's saved. We believe that once somebody is saved, that they remain saved, regardless of what they do in life, because salvation is of the Lord. When we talk about secure and eternal security in general, there are oftentimes objections that come up. They'll say, well, yeah, I see what you're saying in this passage, but what about this passage? What about this verse? What about this? And, and like I said last week, we're not probably going to get a comprehensive coverage of all the verses that possibly could come up, but we're going to try to hit the main ones over the course of the next couple of months. If we don't hit your objection, again, if you want to have a private conversation, if I don't cover it, I would love to do that, whether that's on email, phone, in person, just let me know. We want to, uh, we want to kind of keep that, that openness to look at the Word of God together. We started last week, and we looked at a couple of passages in the Gospels, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to kind of just take these objectives or objections as systematically as possible. Start with the gospels, move into the the Pauline epistles with certain passages there, and then move into the general epistles. And so we're kind of hopefully moving in a systematic order. There may be some repetitive comments. That's okay. Repetition never hurt anybody. It's actually sometimes we tend to get things on the second, third, fourth, eighth time we hear it. So it's, it's okay to hear that again. Last week, I started on this topic of this idea that if you can get saved, but if there's an, a change in your faith, that somehow you could lose your salvation. Many people will provide that objection. And the way it kind of looks is they have an abrupt change in faith. Like, you know, they believe in Christ, but then later they reject him that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Or some people will say, well, if they lack a continual or an ongoing belief, it either proves one of two things. One, that they lost their salvation or two, they never had it to begin with. And so many people will, will try to take this concept of faith and I believe build more into it than the scripture teaches. The point is this, that if, if there is an abrupt change in faith, many people will say you can be condemned if you have an abrupt change in faith, you can be condemned. You can lose your salvation. And I believe one of the reasons that this objection comes up, this isn't really being critical. It's a critique. Okay. So I'm not trying to be critical of anybody. It's just more of a critique and an observation because I believe some people consider this view due to their lack of understanding of the transactional nature of justification. And so when I say transactional nature, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about anything that, that happens that we do in our daily life. Like we go to the grocery store, we, we make a transaction. There's a price to be paid. We receive goods or services based on the price. And once that price is paid, we receive it. It, it doesn't get taken back and forth. You know, you don't go to a restaurant, eat the food, pay for it, and then have to give the food back nor do you get an invoice in the mail two weeks later for that meal. You take care of it before you leave. Hopefully, hopefully you're not dining and dashing, but uh, you know, hopefully we take care of it before we leave. And that's a transaction. That's a transactional nature. And so when we talk about a transaction, it happens at a point in time when conditions are agreed upon and met by at least two parties. And like I said, we do this in our life all the time. Go to Kroger, go to Aldi's, go to your favorite Mexican restaurant, go to McDonald's, go anywhere and make a purchase, go to, go to amazon.com, right? There's a transaction that happens. And once that payment is made, that transaction is finalized. And that's the deal. And see, justification is just like that. In the area of salvation, what we've talked about a number of times, and we try to put these things together, is that Jesus died for you. Now, every American on earth knows that but do you know why Jesus died for you? That's the question, because this is when it starts to mean something. Because there was a death penalty hanging over your head. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to face that death penalty. And not only that, the scriptures teach us that when he died for your sins, the penalty for your sins, he died for all of them, past, present, and future. All of them. He paid the full price. That's what it is finished means. Tetelestai. It's, it's been paid in full. And that's what Jesus did that day 2,000 years ago on the cross for you and me. Paid it in full. And so that payment has been made. And now he offers eternal life. He offers salvation. He offers forgiveness of sins to anyone who will simply put their faith in him. And this is why when you look at passages like John 
5.24, God, on the sole basis of somebody believing this message and putting their trust in Christ, makes incredible transactional promises, which are, John 5.24, he who hears my word and believes in me, who sent me, notice first promise of this transaction, has everlasting life. That means life, by definition, that never ends that goes on forever. So if I have eternal life today and I can lose it five years from now, was it ever eternal life? No, but he can make that transactional promise based on the finished work of Christ. That's why he can guarantee that life will never end. He says, he'll have everlasting life. He shall not come into judgment, never come into condemnation. Why? Because Jesus took the condemnation for you. The moment you put your faith in him, he became your substitute, your personal substitute, so you would never have to face condemnation. And then he goes on to say, but has passed from death into life. And you see, everything about justification is transactional. It's transactional based on a payment, and the payment was made in full. Just like other transactions, once the agreed upon conditions are met, the transaction's over. Like I said, if you go out to eat this afternoon and the bill is $17.25 and you pay $17.25, if you get an invoice in the mail from that restaurant, you're going to be like, who is running that place? It's like the loony, you know, the loony bin emptied out and they're managing restaurants in Noonan now. They're not, they're not going to send me an extra invoice for a meal I've already paid for. We understand the transactional nature of things. Justification, salvation from the penalty of sin is the same exact way, according to God. Now, Many people would argue against that. And what they would say, and just turn with me to John chapter three. We're gonna be there for the next couple of slides. Many people will say something like this. You know, a person's saved when they put their faith in Jesus Christ, but if they stop believing or if they don't continue in faith, then they can lose their salvation or they can prove that they were never saved. This lack of continuing ongoing belief will prove that they're never saved. You'll hear this a lot if you talk to people about eternal security because, you know, they'll, they'll confidently assert, yes, I'm saved. Zero to 100%, how sure are you saved? Oh, I'm 100%. 100% sure they're saved. And then I'll ask the question, well, is there anything you can do to lose it? And many of them will say, yeah, I mean, if you stop believing. So then the logical follow-up question is, so how can you be 100%? And you know, the, the typical answer is, well, I, other people will stop believing, but I'll never do that. And again, you know, I, I remember a story in the Bible that sounds just like that. And again, cock-a-doodle do, right? I mean, it, there was a, a guy that said, I'll never deny you, Lord. I'll never deny you. I'll go to death. I'll die for you. And within 24 hours, he had broken his promise. And the point is, we don't know what the future holds for each one of us. And so if that's the basis for our salvation, none of us can be 100% sure because we just don't know what we're gonna do five minutes from now, let alone five years from now, 15 years from now, et cetera. But a lot of people, when they come to this, this concept of continuing belief, they'll actually appeal to John three sixteen to prove their point. This is kind of interesting. If you've never heard this before, you know, this is one of the reasons I brought it up and we're gonna get a little technical here, but I'm gonna try to make it, well, I mean, as fun as technical Greek can be or as fun as, you know, math can be or history, all the things that many people hate, we're gonna try to make it fun. But if you're a grammar person, you're about to be in heaven for a few minutes. <laughs> if you're not a grammar person, just hold on, try to get the punchline at the end. That's gonna be the main thing. But in John three sixteen, do you know, and we all know this verse by heart, but do you know that that phrase, whoever believes, is a present tense participle. What people will say is they'll say, see, it's present tense. That means it's gotta be ongoing and continual, okay? And people will, will say this. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar. Trust me, I'm not a Greek scholar. If you slapped a Greek New Testament in front of me, I, I might could you know, read some of the words. I'm gonna be very dependent on other sources to get all of the vocabulary. So I'm not claiming to be a Greek scholar by any stretch of the imagination. But understand that that view of Greek, it's a present tense participle, thus it must mean ongoing or continual action, is a very elementary view. 
That is not good Greek <laughs> to assume that that's what it means every single time. In fact, it's often said by Greek scholars that the mastery of the Greek participle in syntax will give you mastery of the Greek language. The Greek language is full of participles. And when I say participles, for, for those of us that, and I'm not really a grammar guy, my wife is, but I'm not. You can tell sometimes how I talk, I'm not a grammar guy, but participles generally are words that end in ing in English. That's kind of what we think of in terms of participles. In the Greek language, it's, it's really like a verbal noun. And there's, there's clues to every participle as to how you're going to take it. Now, let me give you an example of this. That looks like Greek to me. And it does. It's very hard to read, and I knew that going into this. But having said that, I just want to show you some background information on the Greek participle. Really quickly, I'm just going to run through. Right up here, anytime you see a participle in the Greek, you start here. This is what's called a participle flow chart in the Greek. So anybody that's taken elementary Greek, anybody that's learning about participles, their professor is going to give them something that looks like this to help them out. Now, most of us put that away in a file and we don't look at it too much. It just kind of gets buried in the dust. You can see why. It's a little bit complicated. But let me just show you simplistically what we're doing here is you start here with your participle and then you answer questions. Does it have, and the very first question you answer is, does it have an article? Does the participle have an article? The word the with it, okay? No, then you go over here and this is what you're working through to figure out what kind of participle you've got. So you got a lot of questions, you know? Yes, no, yes, no, yes. I mean, you're bouncing over here. So you kind of get down here, you're like, okay, I've got a participle of manner. I got a participle of means. And then you can go back to the text and kind of understand a little bit more how the author might be using that participle. The good news for us this morning is John 3.16 is articulated. So we just get to go right. Yes, it is. It has an article. Whoever believes has an article. And then we have two choices here. It's either substantival or adjectival. Now, that doesn't help us much either. But let me just tell you this. What we're going to see in John 3.16 with believe, it is a present tense articular participle. It has the article, which functions as a substantival noun or a descriptive title. In other words, the addition of the article takes that participle and turns it more into a noun of description rather than a verbal description. Does that help a little? Probably not for some. Hopefully it helps for some. So we would take he who believes here in John 3.16, and it simply means the believer, or he who believes, or the believing one. Now, when we get to the verbal aspect of it, here's what we've got to understand, that in the Greek grammatical construction itself, it doesn't tell us whether it's a one-time belief or if it's an ongoing belief. You, you can't just say, oh, it's a present tense, articular participle, substantival, all right, one-time event. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. Sometimes it is continual. So again, I'm, I'm, giving, I'm trying to just paint the nuances of this so that we can make the argument for a one-time moment of faith. But I'm trying to tell you that within the grammatical structure, you don't get that. You just don't get that. It's not, it's not communicated in that grammatical structure. You don't even get when it occurred. So even though it's a present tense participle, we typically think present tense, it happens right now in the present. You don't even get that from this participle. It could be talking about something that's done in the past, something that's done in the present, or something that's done in the future. Okay, so now that I've painted that scenario, let me give you some other examples where the the Greek uses the same exact construction, but it doesn't use the word believe. It uses other activities that we might recognize. And, and what we're going to see is that the present tense, articular, substantival participle does not always reflect continual or ongoing action. That's the point of looking at these verses. So just flip with me for a second. Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 and verse 18. Let's read the passage and then I'll tell you where this construction is found. Mark 14, 18 says, now as they, they sat and ate, Jesus said, surely I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? He answered and said to them, it is one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. 
Okay, see that, that phrase, who dips? That's our present tense, articular, substantival participle. That's what we're talking about. The question becomes here, this is, obviously we know this is speaking of Judas. Is, is that act of dipping continual here? In other words, it, did Jesus, are Jesus and Judas still sitting around the table dipping with one another? Is that, I mean, that's, that would be a continual ongoing dipping, right? But we know that's not the case. We know that it was a one-time event. In fact, when we go to John 13, 26, it establishes that it was a one-time gesture. In fact, go to John 13, 26, and speaking of this same dip, actually, let's go back. Verse 25, then leaning back on Jesus' breast, this is John, he said to Jesus, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. One-time dip, one-time dip, but it's a present tense, articular, substantival participle, but it reflects a one-time action. Let me give you another example. The women in the room are going to love this one. Luke chapter 1, verse 34 through 35. And since it's Valentine's Day, the men should also love this example. If you love your wife. Luke 1, 34 through 35 says this, then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. The phrase, who is to be born, is the same construction that we find in John 3, 16, for whoever believes. Imagine if that was continual and ongoing. Mary was going to continually and ongoingly give birth to Jesus, meaning she's going to be in labor from this point forward on. Which, what lady would sign up for that? I mean, clearly from the context, we know that when he uses this present tense parable, he's not talking about ongoing, ongoing continual birthing. He's talking about a one-time event. How do we know that? The context tells us that. We know that birth is a one-time event. Let me give you one other example. Same, just in Luke as well. Go Go to Luke chapter 16. This is in verse 18. Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife, there's our participle, by the way, the same structure as found in John three sixteen, for whoever believes, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. That's the same phrase. Again, the very nature of divorce is, is momentary or punctiliar means that it happens at a point in time. When does it happen? When the legal decision is made, when the paperwork's done. That's when it happens. It's not ongoing. You don't ongoingly divorce your wife, right? A man doesn't ongoingly, continually be in divorcement proceedings with his wife. The results of divorce is ongoing, but the actual act of divorce happens at a point in time when it's official, when it's made official and the paperwork's finalized. So that's, that's just three examples of that structure to give you the main point, which is this. The main point is this. Whoever believes in John 3.16 does not inherently in the grammatical structure indicate continual or ongoing belief. It's just not there. It's not in the grammatical structure. So we have to do what with it? Well, we have to do what we do with any type of language. Anytime we're we're using language, trying to interpret the, the Bible, we have to go to the context. We have to allow the context to see if there's any clue as to whether this is an ongoing belief, like some would teach, or is it referring to a one-time moment of faith as we would teach? How do we know? Well, let's go, let's go back to John chapter 3. And in John 3, 14, a couple verses before verse 16, Jesus uses an object lesson that I think is so pertinent to this discussion. And the object lesson that Jesus used to illustrate belief we're going to see was a one-time moment of faith, not an ongoing or continual faith. What is that description? Well, let's look at John three fourteen. Let's read it. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And if you remember your Old Testament, and if you don't, I'll give you a quick summary. It's not a, it's not a big deal, but just to understand the context of the story, 
It, it describes the story of the Israelites. It describes the fact that God sent poisonous snakes among them. Why did he do that? Well, in judgment, they had complained against Moses. They had complained against God and basically complained about everything that they possibly could think of to complain about. And so God sends judgment in the form of fiery, poisonous snakes. Now let's hold our finger there and go to Numbers chapter 21, because I want you to see the response required. Numbers chapter 21 in verse 7, we see as the fiery poisonous snakes get sent out among the people, they cry out to Moses. Moses, help us. We messed up. You know, kind of, kind of the idea. Moses then takes it to the Lord. He prays. And then in verse 8, we read, then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And so what was the remedy for the poisonous snakes? Well, Moses was to make a serpent, lift it up. The second they looked upon that pole, they were healed. Transactional. And what we learned from that is all that was required was one look. They would be permanently healed. Nowhere in the scripture, as they continue to wander in the wilderness, as they continue to conquer the land of Canaan, it's not a video game where your, your energy is, is going down and it's like, look at the pole again. And you're like, do, do, do. You know, you pump up with energy. That wasn't it at all. They didn't have to go on looking at the serpent to remain healed. It was a one-time moment of faith. Now go to John 3.14 again. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In the same way that the serpent healed the Israelites on a moment of faith, when they looked at the provision God had provided, is the same way that you and I get eternal life. As Jesus was lifted up and died for our sins and rose again, God just implores us and beckons us to put our faith in the one who did that for us. And you see the connection there. This, again, I do not believe teaches a continual and ongoing faith. Now, does God want his children, those who are justified, to walk by faith moment by moment? Yes, but it's not to get justified. Justification is transactional. The moment I put my faith in Christ, his payment credited to my account, no payment else needed. It's done. It's finished. The sins have been paid for. Anyways, that is John 3.16. Moving a couple of verses down, another thing that people will say is, well, if you put your faith in Christ, but then you reject him at a later date, then you can lose your salvation. A lot of people will bring that up. And many times they'll go to this verse and they'll say, yeah, see, John 3.18 says, if you stop believing or if you don't believe, then you can go to hell. You can face condemnation. So let's read John 3.18 and let's consider that, that argument. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, as we're observing that verse in verse 18, we see the word believe used three times. Coming out of John 3, 16, you might be interested to know that the first couple of uses of the word believe there in verse 18 are the same exact grammatical construction that we find in John 3, 16. It's a present tense participle that's a substantival. It's articulated, it's substantival. Okay, so it, it's the one who believes, the believing one, you would say, in the first two phrases. And when we get to the third use, it's going to be really interesting because Jesus switches to a verb there. So now he's, he's definitely talking about the action of believing. We'll see how that plays out. I want to just kind of move through this quickly. That very first phrase, it says, he who believes in him is not condemned. The idea is condemned as a present tense verb. And the idea is that they're not condemned in the present. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're not condemned in the present. You're not presently condemned. It's the same word that's used in Romans 8.1 that says there's no condemnation. Or it's a derivative of that word. There's no condemnation for those who are, what? In Christ Jesus. And we've looked at that verse a couple of weeks ago. The second phrase though, so he's contrasting the one who believes and the one who does not believe. And what he says about the one who does not believe is what? He's condemned already. He's condemned already. 
In fact, he, he uses for the word condemned, he uses a perfect tense. Remember, perfect tense means past completed event with ongoing results. In other words, they were condemned in the past and they remain condemned. Why? Because they, they haven't believed, right? So they remain in condemnation. This is exactly what the Bible teaches, that we're born in sin, we're born condemned. That's just the nature of how it works when we're born in this world. We're under God's wrath and condemnation. We need a new birth. This is why Jesus tells Nicodemus earlier in this chapter that he needs a new birth. Now, this is where it gets interesting. We're okay with that, but I want you to see the transition between the second phrase to the third phrase because it begs a question that I'm gonna insert and ask for understanding. But that second phrase says, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Here's my insertion. Why? Why are they condemned already? Look at the next word. Because he's gonna answer that question. He's gonna tell us why those who are not believing, why they're condemned already. And notice what he says. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. We talked about this verse last week as being the unpardonable sin. This is the only unpardonable sin in our day is rejection of Jesus Christ. But we get more than that. It's not just that you believed and now you reject him. John clarifies this issue. Jesus, through John's writing, clarifies this issue that the person who does not believe, the one he mentioned in that second phrase, is someone who has never believed on Jesus. That's very important. This is not someone who believed and then rejected him. This is reflecting somebody that's never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because how do we know that? Because it's in the perfect tense, perfect active indicative, which again indicates a completed event in the past with ongoing results. We could say it's something like this. They've never believed in the past and they remain unbelieving today. The the results continue. And that person who goes throughout their life having never believed, you know, you're not a Christian because you were born in a church, just like you're not a car because you were were born in a garage, or you're not a doctor because you were born in a hospital, right? I mean, nobody's born a Christian. Nobody's born a Christian. We have to hear the gospel. We have to put our faith in Jesus Christ. We have to be born again. That's what this is reflecting, that nobody, nobody comes into the world believing. We all need to change our mind at some point about who or what we're trusting in to get to heaven. And it may be simple. It's not like we're trusting Satan, but we might be trusting religion. We might be trusting our good works. We might be just trusting what a pastor said. We might be just trusting what the Pope said. We might be trusting something somewhere out there. We may be even trusting in the fact that we, our version of God doesn't judge anybody. And that's what we're trusting in to not face condemnation. And see, all of us need to change our mind about that. God's got a much different story than that. And the story is this, each one of us, if we got what we earned and deserved, that's what wages mean, by the way, we would deserve death and hell. Now, that's not a positive, feel-good message, but you know what is a positive and feel-good message? God doesn't want you to go to hell. That's positive. And God did something about it so you wouldn't have to go to hell. He sent his only begotten son to die in your place, take your sins upon him. He died for you. He rose again. God accepted his sacrifice. And now you can be acceptable to God. You can have a righteousness equal to God's righteousness based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. What this is saying is that somebody has never believed that. And you know what? And they remain in a state of unbelief. That's what John 3.18 is saying. Again, it's not talking about someone who believed and then stopped believing. It's specifically talking about someone who's never believed. And again, we go back to this concept that justification is is transactional in nature. The moment you believe, you receive the goods and services. And the good news about salvation, the goods and services have been completely paid for. It's offered to you as a free gift the moment you believe. That is dealing with this abrupt change in faith that we we started this morning on. Another objection to eternal security, and we're getting into some nuanced objections here. Another one that I've heard is people will say, well, you you can be saved. You'll never lose your salvation, but you could give it back. And the concept is like, you know, I've received a gift from somebody and I like the gift and I'm thankful for the gift. But one day I I, I get into a tiff with that person and I just, no, I don't want your gift anymore. 
And so sometimes human examples work really well and sometimes they break down in the area of salvation. I believe this is one of the areas that it breaks down. But a lot of people will go to another passage in John chapter 10. And so let's flip over there to John chapter 10. This is one of the passages I had Robert read earlier. John chapter 10, verse 27 and 29. We're going to focus our attention there. Let me just read it here and then we'll get into it. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. This is a pretty common objection. They would say, hey, you can't lose it, but you could give it back. You could give it back. Or as we'll see later, you know, that when he uses the illustration of you're in Jesus's hand, you're in God the Father's hand, they say, well, no one can snatch you out, but you can jump out. I've heard people say, well, you can jump and get out of his hand. Let's build up to verse, verse 29, actually the end of verse 28 and verse 29. Remember Jesus, we talked about this verse a few weeks ago and we went into great detail, so we won't redo that. But just to make the point again, in verse 28, notice that Jesus is the one who gives believers eternal life. It's a present tense gift of life that never ends by definition. We said before, like if you get eternal life today, let me just go back. This is not a voucher for eternal life that you can cash in when you die. That's not what he's talking about here. I think many people view that. It's like, oh man, I got my, and we'll even use that phrase, man, I got my ticket to heaven. I got my voucher for eternal life. This is not a voucher. If you give me a voucher, which by the way, I'm always open to this, but if you give me a voucher to Chick-fil-A, and again, I'm always open to that if you would like to do that. No, does this voucher, is it actually frosted lemonade? Do I roll this up and put the straw in and does frosted lemonade come out of this voucher? Of course not. I have to go do what? At a future date, I have to go redeem the voucher for my frosted lemonade. And you know, many people, I think, view salvation that way, that Jesus gives a voucher for eternal life, and then you have to wait till the end of your life, and then you turn it in and you actually get it. No, Jesus brings the frosted lemonade right to you. Yeah, amen. Lots of frosted lemonade. And and eternal life is yours the moment you put your faith in Christ. He gives it to you, not a voucher to redeem later. You have eternal life. And so it begs the question, if you have eternal life, Jesus gives it to you and you can do something five years from now, five minutes from now, 20 years from now that could lose it. Did you ever possess life that lasts forever? The answer is no, by definition, you didn't. And so we take Jesus at face value. When he says eternal, he means eternal. He doesn't mean five years or until you mess up. And it's just incredible how that goes on and on. You know, there's an old preacher by the name of Harry Ironside. Anybody ever heard of Ironside? Maybe so. Harry H.A. Ironside. Sometimes he just goes by his initials. Interesting. He was preaching on the subject of security and using John 10. And a woman came up to him afterward and said, I disagree with what you taught. And he said, well, what do you disagree with? She said, I disagree with the doctrine of once saved, always saved. And he said, well, let me show you a verse. Can I show you a verse? And she says, I already know what verse you're going to show me. And he says, okay, what verse, what, what, what verse am I going to show you? She said, John 10, 10, 28 to 29. And he's like, you're exactly right. That's a, you're right. That's the exact verse I was going to show you. And he goes down to read this. And he says, he says, well, let me read it to you. Verse 28. And he says, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. And neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Then he looked her in the eye and he says, do you believe these words? And she said, not how you interpret them. And he said, I didn't even interpret them. I just read them. I'm just asking you, based on the reading, do you believe these words? And she says, not how you interpret them. And he says, okay, let me try something else. Supposing Jesus said, I give them life for 20 years and they shall never perish for 20 years and no one can snatch them out of my hand for 20 years. What would you think that meant? And she said, I would think that meant they were safe for 20 years. Making the connection. Let us change 20 years to 40 years. Would they be safe for 40 years? And she said, yeah, I think they'd be safe for 40 years. And he says, but it doesn't say 20 years. And it doesn't say 40 years. What it says is forever. And it says they shall never perish. And he says, let's read it that way again. 
I give unto them life forever and they shall never perish forever. Do you believe that? And what do you think she said? Not the way you interpret it. And so sometimes it's so hard to just take Jesus at, at face value. This is what he's saying here. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, but remember the, this is why this next phrase that he uses makes total sense. They shall never perish. Look at verse 28. He says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And remember, I don't want to get into all the details again, but just a couple. The word never is the double negation, Greek double negation, ume, which is the strongest way you can negate something in the Greek language. It basically says, shall never, no, not ever. Never, no, not ever. It's the strongest emphatic way to negate that something can't happen. And then not only that, we mentioned this when we were going over this passage, right there, it's not even translated in John 28. I don't know if they thought the, the verse was going to get too wordy. There's an entire phrase there that, that the translators don't bring out. It's there in the blue. It's Iston Iona. And it literally translated means into the ages or forever. So if we were to just give a, a, just a literal, just straightforward translation, Jesus said, you shall never, no, not ever perish forever. See how emphatic that is? And that's just the first part of verse 28. That doesn't even include the second part of verse 28, which is even more emphatic. Jesus adds this additional teaching. And he says that neither, in addition to what I just said about eternal life and never perishing, also, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now, I want to make a point with this word because it means to seize upon, to snatch away with force. And this is the point I want to make. Jesus uses the future tense right here. No one in the future shall be able to snatch them out of my hand. I want to make a couple of points on that. Is Christ holding on to the believer here or is the believer holding on to Jesus Christ? Whose hand are we talking about here? This is the difference between the kangaroo and the monkey. Remember, we used that example. Mama monkeys fly through the trees and baby monkey better hold on or it's going down. And baby monkey holds on the back. And if the baby lets go, the baby's done. But that's not the case in the, with the kangaroo. Where does the kangaroo put their little babies? In her pouch. She's holding on to the baby. It's the same thing here. Whose hand are we talking about? We're talking about the hand of Jesus Christ, not your hands. Not your feeble grip on Jesus Christ, but on, on Jesus' strong iron grip on you. That's what we're talking about. This is why he can say, no one can snatch a believer out of my hand. And then again, I meant, mentioned this possibility that at no point in the future is this even possible. It's basically saying, even at a point in the future, no one can snatch the believer out of my hand. Okay, emphatic, right? Then he just drops more emphaticness in verse 29. As if the passage hasn't already just been screaming with exclamation points and highlighters, he gives us another phrase. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And no one means no one, not even one. And the idea is there doesn't exist in God's creation a person, a created being that could ever rip you as a believer out of the Father's hand. Jesus uses the same word for snatch, but this time he uses a present tense to describe snatch. So not only can you not be snatched out of Jesus's hand in the future, you cannot be snatched out of the Father's hand in the present. See how emphatic this security is? And so again, a couple of Things here, no one is able to snatch the believer out of the hand in the future or the present. And again, who's holding on to who here? Well, God the Father is clearly holding on to the believer. So all that is fine. And I've had that conversation with a number of people, but then they still say this. They'll say, I got you. I understand that. I can see no one can snatch me out of Jesus' hand. No one can snatch me out of the Father's hand. But we can still jump out. That's typically the response. Yeah, nobody else can pull me out, but I myself can give it back. I myself can jump out. And that's typically the argument that's brought up at this point. So just three points on that, why I would disagree with it. First of all, the words anyone and no one include the believer here. Otherwise, there would have been an exception given in the context. Within the, the grouping of anyone, within the grouping of no one, 
Even believers fall into that category. And so to say that you could jump out of Jesus's hand or you could jump out of the Father's hand would imply that we are indeed stronger than Jesus or stronger than God the Father. We talk a lot about eternal security and one of the beautiful things about it is God's promises to you as a believer that you're eternally secure. But you know what I think is even greater than that, even stronger than that? is the very fact that God has to remain faithful to his promises due to his character. That's why 2 Timothy, which we'll get to when we get to Paul's epistles, 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13, what what does verse 13 says? It says exactly that. In fact, let's go there and and read it, or you can just listen if you want to follow along. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, He remains faithful. Why? Now, he doesn't say because he's made promises to you there, although that's true. God has made promises to you. He has made promises to me. But 2 Timothy 2.13 says, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. He can't deny himself. So no one, going back to John 10, Anyone includes the believer. You can't even jump out of the hand of God because he would be denying himself. And by the way, second, if you could jump out of the hands of the Father and the Son, guess what? You can perish. What did Jesus just say in in verse 28? He said in the most emphatic way possible, never, no, not ever, forever, perish. That's true of the believer. So if you could jump out, then you could perish. And see, we see a contradiction in terms. If you could jump out of the hands of God the Father and Jesus Christ, you wouldn't have eternal life. You would not have life that lasts forever. You see, this would contradict the very promises and the very character of Jesus Christ. And it can't happen. And then a third reason, this is more grammatical. It's not probably the strongest argument. I think the other two are, are stronger. But the word is able. Go back to verse 29. This is kind of an interesting note here. Verse 29 says, no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Is able is a verb. And it's, it's either in the middle or the passive voice. There's lots of times in Greek where the middle and passive voice, it's the same exact form. In other words, you can't tell by just the form of the word, oh yeah, that's definitely middle, that's definitely passive. There are certain words that have middle and passive where they look exactly the same and you've got to kind of figure it out from the context. And sometimes you're still not, you'll go to the lexicon and you're like looking for some Greek scholar to bail you out like, oh, please tell me this is a middle or please tell me this is a passive. And they'll say, it's either middle or passive. Like they don't help you. It's kind of like going to the dictionary and you're looking up a word you don't understand and, and they use the word to define the word. It's like, oh. It doesn't help you. So this is one of those instances. It's either middle or passive. I bring this up because if it is middle, it's very insightful to this discussion because a middle voice is more of a reflexive action. In other words, I do the action with the results coming back on me. That's the middle voice in the Greek. It would mean that a person does not even have the ability to snatch themselves out of the father's hand, i.e. they can't jump out. They don't even have the inherent power. That word able, it comes from the the Greek word meaning power. It's inherent power. They don't even have the inherent power to jump out of his hand. It's kind of the idea if it's middle. If it's passive, then it just goes with the rest of the passage that no one outside of the believer can rip them out of God's hand. So either way, it's, it's a strong argument. If it's the middle, it's a very strong argument against what's typically taught. Let's try to cover one more passage, John 15. And then we'll close out today. This is uh, an object lesson that Jesus used with his disciples. And he's speaking to the 11 disciples here. Judas has been dismissed. He's already left the dinner in John chapter 13. So he's talking to his 11 disciples who are going to become the foundation for the church. In order to explain this concept of spiritual fruit bearing, what Jesus does is he uses an analogy that they would have been familiar with. He uses a vineyard. That right there causes us problems because we're just, most of us are not familiar with viticulture, right? I didn't, you know, I didn't even know that word until I started studying John 15, right? It's vineyard. It's the care for vineyards. It's just not something a lot of us do. In fact, in Georgia, I got here and my neighbor told me, you need to cut down all those vines on your tree or they're going to they're gonna kill your tree. That's a totally different world. I mean, I just, 
I just cut it down because I want to save my, you know, save my trees. But this is not talking about, this is talking about a grape vineyard. And so in verse one, we get the players of this object lesson introduced to us. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. This analogy, we want to kind of keep all of these people in mind. We want to keep the imagery together. Jesus is the vine. Believers are the branches and the father is the vine dresser. Those are the players in this object lesson. And all, all branches in this object lesson are believers. How do we know that? Well, because they're in the vine. They're in the vine. If, you can, if we can show, show me anywhere else in scriptures where an unbeliever is described as being in Christ, I'd be interested in seeing that. It doesn't exist because believers are the only ones that are in Christ. So we're starting the analogy with the understanding that when we talk about branches, we're not talking about professing branches or fake Christians. We're not, there are professing Christians, there are fake Christians. We hear about that, we read about that in the epistles. False teachers drawing people. I, I get it. That's not what we're talking about right here. We're talking about believers. We're talking about people who are in Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's where we start with it. And guess what? The primary goal, let's stay in the, the realm of vine dressers for a second. The primary goal of every vine dresser that's ever existed on planet earth is to get as much fruit out of as many branches as possible. Why? Because most vine, dresser, vine dressers are businessmen. Who starts a business and say, yeah, I don't want to make as much money as I can. I just, I want to stay poor. That's why I start a business. No one does that. So the vine dresser is all about fruit bearing. The vine dresser is going to do everything he can to allow his vineyard to bear more fruit. We could say it this way. He's, he's going to work tirelessly. He's going to work relentlessly. I've got a brother-in-law that's a farmer, and he works more hours than any lawyer or doctor that I've ever known, and you think they're busy. This guy works tirelessly and effortlessly because if he takes one day off, it could ruin an entire yield for him and completely bury his family for the year. It's intense. It's relentless. It's tireless. It's intentional. It's, it's very attentive is what we see in this passage. But here's the problem when we get to verse two. Taking all of that into context, what we see in verse two, and this trips many people up, is it says this, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And people will say right there, boom, loss of salvation. See, if you don't bear fruit, you're gonna get taken away. You don't bear fruit, you're gonna be ripped out of the vine and you're gonna go to hell. And the way I can prove it, look down at verse six, it talks about fire, there we go. And that's the connection people make in this passage. So let's look at that a little bit more carefully. In fact, let's finish verse two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. We see that the vine dresser does two things here to the branches in order to maximize overall fruit production of his vine. Remember, the vine dresser is interested in what? More fruit. As much fruit out of every branch possible. This is what he is all about. And so the first thing we see is if there's an unfruitful branch, it says that he takes them away. He takes them away. That's the translation of the New King James. He takes them away. The Greek word iro is, is written there for you in the blue is translated takes away. It means to raise to a higher position uh, or higher place or position. It means to lift up and move from one place to another or to take away, remove, or seize control. Think about it this way. In fact, let me just pull up this next slide because what you're gonna see in this word, there's, there's oftentimes words in language that every time you mean it, it means the same thing. You can just bank on it. When this word is used, it means this. But there are words in, even in the English language, you just need context. You just, quite frankly, you just need context. Trunk, great word. You know you need context. Trunk of the car, elephant's trunk. Am I reading a letter from the 1800s where they kept their clothes in a trunk? Anyways, there's this context needed. You can't just say the word trunk and say, oh, it always means the trunk of a car. Well, go tell Christopher Columbus that. You're like, what? What's a car? You know? 
So obviously there's words that need context. I believe this is one of those words that needs context. And I'll tell you why. Look at how it's used. In Matthew 9, 6, it means to pick up a bed. Mark 16, it means to pick up a serpent. Matthew 8, 34, it means to take up your cross. Mark 13, 16, to get or retrieve a garment. Luke 8, 12, it means to take away as a bird takes away seed. Or Matthew 25, 28, as a ruler takes away money. And there's several other meanings. We just don't have time to go through all of them. But you can see, like, even from a, from a semantical the meaning of the word, there's a semantical range with this word. We've got to try to understand in context, what does this word mean? Does he simply mean lift it up? Or does he simply mean lift it up and take it away? What's he describing here? Again, does he mean to take away a fruitless branch from the vine? Or does he mean to lift up a branch in the vine? Well, you know what? Based on the analogy, Based on what we know of first century vine dressing and viticulture, the vine dresser only handles branches that aren't bearing fruit. He only physically touches branches that aren't bearing fruit. And why does he do that? Because in the first century, he would lift them up and tie them to runners. Why? Hoping that that would help them produce fruit. See, they're not bearing fruit because they're laying in the ground. They're laying in the soil. A good vine dresser knows that if I leave it in the soil, bacteria can get to the branch. So what they would do is they would pick the branch up, they would clean it off, and then they would do something like this. Now, they've gotten a lot more technological today, and they build trellises for these vines, but this is what they would do in the first century. They would literally lift the branch off the ground, clean it off, and put this little Y-shaped runner underneath it to lift it up. Why? Because it fits exactly with what a vine dresser would do. He wants that branch to bear fruit. He's not just, oh, they didn't bear fruit. They didn't bear fruit. I'll just cut them off and get rid of them, take them away. He knows that the reason they haven't borne fruit is because they're laying in the dirt. They're not exposed to the sun. They may have bacteria setting in on it. And so he does everything in his power to produce fruit in this fruitless branch. Based on this, it seems probable. I think it's a strong argument. We're making an argument from culture. We're making an argument from the language. This is well within the semantic range of this word that it seems probable that, probable that this verse emphasizes great care for the unfruitful branch on the part of the vine dresser, not judgment or condemnation. It's just very important to study this, hopefully within context. We're short on time today. But that gives me an opportunity to review this next week, and then we'll get into verse 6 and actually deal with the fire. And that, yes, that was a little teaser, but it was not planned. I actually planned to get through all of it. I just probably got a little bit long-winded. We'll get back on this next week and hope you can join us. Let's close there with the word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you. We, our hope in prayer, as always, is that Jesus is exalted and We just want for each person in this room, each person listening to think higher, to to place more value on what Jesus Christ has done for them than maybe when they walked in the room. That's our heart's desire, Lord. We just want to see him exalted and glorified. We want to see people resting in his finished work and just enjoying everything that he accomplished for us. That's our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.